Good. You can open your Bible to Matthew 26. Look at verses 26 through 29. So we're finishing our series on worship. Um, Maybe it's not what you thought it was going to be. Um, but, uh, but we've been looking at why we do what we do. We've, we've looked at some of the major themes, kind of those foundational uh, concepts of why we gather for worship on Sunday mornings on the Lord's Day, and then, um, <clears throat> and then how those foundational themes kind of play themselves out uh, in the particular things that we do. Uh, next week, Greg Joins is going to be here um, preaching. He's, he's been here a couple times before. So maybe you remember him. He's uh, planning a church down in Corvallis called uh, Christ Central Presbyterian. Um, he's going to be here next week, and then the week after that, Brian Friesen's going to take a shot at it, and uh, <clears throat> and he's really going to bring all this worship stuff together for you. So um, no pressure. So <clears throat> have expectations. <laughs> um, the, then after that through the rest of the summer, the next series we're going to do is going to be on the Trinity. It'll go along with the fact that the church calendar time right now, we're in um, the, the time of the Trinity. It's, what is it now, the second Sunday after Trinity uh, today, and that lasts all the way up until like Advent. So uh, we're not going to do a series on the Trinity until Advent, but um, just through the rest of the summer. And there's, there's a sense in which this series that we've been going through on worship could be uh, considered part of that series. It could be sort of an extended look at uh, the Trinity and worship. Um, we started uh, in John 4. We uh, talked about what it means to worship in spirit and in truth. Um, and, uh, and we went from there, right? The Kind of the foundation being uh, what we see in John 4, that God reveals in his word what worship um, should be like. And that the nature of worship arises from God's triune nature, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and the relationships that exist within God himself, um, how that uh, gives shape to the nature of our worship. And then also the, the content of our worship centers on the incarnate Son of God, which is how we know God, um, because he's sent his Son and has made himself known. He's revealed himself through that. And so, you know, our worship services uh, are Christocentric. Um, and then... Um, and then these foundational truths then bloom into our love for one another, our consideration of each other in worship, and uh, then flow out into the specific elements of our litur- uh, liturgy, which um, the liturgy, our, our worship, our service, uh, represents in dra- dramatic fashion our relationship with God. Right? So this is the, the place where we celebrate our relationship with God, where we enjoy our relationship with God together. And so now uh, we've been in this final section, the means of grace, the word and the sacraments of baptism and the the Lord's Supper, those things through which God assures us of his grace um, for our faith, to build us up in our faith. And the Gospels say that Jesus knew what was in the hearts of people like us, and that's because he's God, right? Um, God knows our hearts. He knows that our faith is weak and small, and so he he knows if we're going to be assured of his love, he's got to pursue us with his love. He seeks to convince us of his favor, and that's very important to him, that we would be persuaded that he loves us, so he has given us the word and the sacraments. Uh, And the sacraments, again, baptism and the Lord's Supper, these have been instituted by Christ. Uh, They signify our relationship with him 
in certain ways. They seal that relationship. They guarantee that relationship to us in certain ways, this uh, spiritual, real relationship that we have. They, they do this with these, these real, physical, tangible elements, right? Water and bread and wine. Um, last week, baptism, uh, we looked at in the name of the, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's the sacrament of initiation into the church, into God's nuclear family. It's, it's the initiation of um, us into the, the place of God's own Son in the relationships of the Trinity. And that points then... Um, to the, to the working definition of worship that we've been using all along, that's that quote in the beginning of the bulletin from Torrance, um, that worship is the gift of, it's, it's the gift, so it comes from uh, God's grace, right? It's, it's the gift of participating through the Spirit in the incarnate Son's communion with the Father. Um, so this morning, I mean, that, we're at the mountaintop of that. We're, we're at the heights of earthly worship. It's the sacrament of the Lord's table, also known as the Eucharist, also known as communion, right? And this is what it's all about. Everything in worship points to this, um, and everything flows from this. It's the regular remembrance of and participation in and anticipation of Jesus Christ. Uh, and so that's how we're going to take it. The table, um, we could look at it in, in a few different ways, this, this order. These things match up. It's, it's remembering. It's participating and it's anticipating. So it's got past and present and future wrapped up in it. It's our greatest needs are met, our purpose is fulfilled, and our destiny is guaranteed in Christ. It's the penalty of sin is removed, the power of sin is overcome, and one day the presence of sin will be eradicated entirely. These are, these are all things that we see in uh, the Lord's table, which is the, um, the pinnacle of our worship. So let's... Um, Let's pray, and then um, we will read the scripture. Father, you've called us here to worship, and um, hearing from you is worship. It can be worship if you renew our hearts for worship, and so we pray that you would do that. You would use your word not only to reveal yourself to us, but to help us commune with you and to help us to be changed by you, by your spirit working in us into the likeness of your son in whose name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> As they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to, his, to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you that I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise be to you, O Christ. So, um, so these three parts, remembering... Um, our greatest need being met in Christ, conquering the, the penalty, uh, removing the penalty of our sin from us. Um, last week, we talked about sacraments in general as signs and seals of the covenant of grace, right? Signs point to a reality, point to a spiritual reality that's true of us uh, through faith in Christ. Seals are the things that guarantee, that kind of um, 
reaffirm this, the, the pledges of these promises. And the covenant of grace, um, then, is, is that relationship that's characterized by God's gracious promises to us. Um, and, uh, and so that's sacraments in general. This sacrament, uh, I mean, Jesus, in his institution of it, speaks of it uh, particularly in verse 28. He says, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Right? And in, uh, sec- in um, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, when Paul is uh, saying, this is what I received from Jesus, what I've delivered to you, and then he goes into the institution of the Lord's Supper. Um, he says, quoting Jesus, do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So the sacrament is a remembrance. It's, it's, not, just a, it's not just a way for us to um, reflect on uh, Christ and his sacrifice, but it is a memorial of Christ and his sacrifice, which met our greatest need, and that need was to be forgiven by God, to be reconciled to God, something we could not do for ourselves. If we're going to have a relationship with God, if we're going to be in covenant with God, have a real relationship with him, then we need to be saved from God's wrath because we're sinners, because we're rebels, and our sin has a penalty that has to be paid, and that penalty is death, Paul says in um, Romans chapter 6. So either we're going to pay that penalty, in which case we die under God's wrath and are separated from him forever, having no relationship with him, or, um, or a substitute pays that penalty for us. Substitute pays it in our place. Right? And in the Old Testament, this is pictured in the temple sacrifices, but especially in the sacrament of the Old Testament, the Passover meal. Um, which we read about in our Old Testament reading. The annual Passover meal happened, happened regularly, uh, and it was supposed to happen forever. The annual Passover meal commemorated God's redemption of Israel, uh, his deliverance of them um, out of Egypt, uh, delivering them not from judgment, but through judgment. Right? The night of the Passover, God went through Egypt, and he was, uh, he was not discriminating between anybody. You're an Egyptian, you're an Israelite. Um, He didn't discriminate. Justice was going to be meted out. Judgment was going to be visited upon every family in the land. And um, if you were going to be spared from his wrath, then you had to sacrifice a lamb and put its blood uh, on your doorposts and on the lintel, which goes into the cross piece, right? The lamb's life was given for you. It was a substitute that was slain for you. You benefited from the shelter of its blood covering your house, and you participated in it by eating it, by eating the roasted lamb. Right? And the Passover became the defining moment for the people of God. It was the salvation of his corporate people um, through judgment, and the result of it was worship. It was made a memorial It was made a meal in which they were to participate forever, and they were instructed, tell your kids what this means, right? Tell your children the significance. What you're eating has significance. It points to something that God has done. As often as they ate of it, they proclaimed the sacrifice of the Passover lamb. But as the Bible makes clear, the Passover lamb itself 
was not enough. The temple guilt offerings were not enough. The atonement sacrifices were not enough because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats, even the blood of Passover lambs, to take away sins, as it says in Hebrews 10. So, um, at the right time, God the Father sent God the Son in the power of God the Spirit. And God the Son became a human, he became Jesus, he became, as John the Baptist said, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He never rebelled against God. He perfectly loved his Father. He perfectly obeyed his Father. He lived the life that you and I were supposed to live. And at the cross, he took upon himself the death that we deserve to die for our sin as as traitors against God and rebels. And this was the substitutionary atonement. It's a big, fancy theological term. Um, He traded places with us. He substituted his life and his death for ours so that our sins were were atoned for, so that our sins were paid for. Um, And that's what we read in our um, confession of sin in 2 Corinthians 5. For our sake, not just for our benefit, it really means in our place, on our behalf, For our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It was a great sacrifice, the death of God's only beloved son, but he took what was ours so that he might give us what is his, the great exchange, uh, sin for righteousness, shame for acceptance, distance for communion, and death for life. And that's what we proclaim, that's what we remember as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup uh, at this sacrament. His body and his blood represented in the bread and the wine for your forgiveness, for your reconciliation to God. So, um, So that proclamation is the only requirement for participation in the Lord's Supper. Proclaiming the Lord's death for you is the only requirement for participants. And the gospel isn't just a philosophy, right? It's not just a set of uh, religious ideas that we espouse. The gospel is not just good moral living. The gospel is news. It's news about real historical events centering on the crucifixion of Christ. And that news about real historical events is uh, is what you have to proclaim in order to be part of the church, in order to be part of uh, the church communing with God through this table. You don't come to the table unless you proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of the cross. And if you do get it, if you do proclaim it, then you better come to this table and eat because it's good for you. Jesus uh, instituted this sacrament at the Passover meal Being God, he, um, he had the authority, he had the right to co-opt the significance of the meal and recast it in light of his sacrifice, which would take place on the next day. Right. Jesus gave thanks to God for the bread and wine, which are representative of his body and his blood. So we give thanks to God for the bread and the wine, which are representative of Christ's body and his blood. So as a thankful remembrance 
of his past sacrifice, his once-for-all sacrifice, to remove the penalty for our sin, which was our greatest need, uh, the sacrament then is appropriately called the Eucharist, which means Thanksgiving, basically. Um, it's in the text where Jesus gave thanks. That word is, uh, is what we get the, the word Eucharist from. So as a thankful remembrance, it's, it's appropriately called the Eucharist. Um, so children, let's boil this down here. Children, all the bad things that you've done and all the good things that you're supposed to do uh, that you haven't done, all the things that you should be in trouble for with God especially, um, Jesus has made it all okay by giving up his, his life for you on the cross. And with the bread, we remember his body, and with the juice or the wine, we remember his blood, which is given for us, because by his body and his blood, we are forgiven. Right. <clears throat> Second, it's a, this table is a, is a participating in the, the present. It's and it's, a, it's our created purpose is being fulfilled at this table. Uh, with the restoration of our relationship to God, we enter into that purpose for which we were created. Uh, it's a relationship of worship and, uh, and joy, right? It's the, the present aspect of communion with God. In the beginning, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit created the world and everything in it, and he said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. So um, God, the eternal being in communion, created humanity in his image, which means essentially relational. God created us to have relationships. The image of God is best reflected then um, not by a solitary individual. Right? The image of God is best reflected by, by persons in mutual, joyful communion together. Right? By persons who know each other and who are known by each other, who give themselves fully to each other. That's how the image of God is reflected best in us. God made us in order to love us. And he made us the way that he made us in his image in order that we would reflect his love and be conduits of his love. Right? Back to him and to others. The essence of our sin is an attack on the image of God. It's a distortion of the image of God in us. So rather than reflecting God who is love, we're curved inward on ourselves in self-love. Right? But when we're restored to communion with God, to a relationship with God, then Jesus, as we sing, breaks the power of reigning sin and sets the prisoner free. We couldn't do anything about our sin nature being curved inward on itself in self-love. We can't do anything about that, but he does something about that. Right? <clears throat> by restoring us to communion with God. So the sacrament is not only a reflection on the means of our salvation. It's actually the practice of the goal of our salvation. True communion with God and with each other. In, in uh, John 6, John's Gospel, after feeding the multitude, 
uh, with a miracle, Jesus gives the bread of life discourse. He says, I'm the bread of life. He says, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. So abiding is um, it's not just kind of mystical language, it's relational language. Right? It's the language of communion. And Jesus defines eternal life. He says, and when he eats my flesh and drinks my blood, has eternal life. He defines it in, uh, in his high priestly prayer. He's praying to his father. He says, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. That they know you. And the Hebrew understanding of knowing uh, is, is more than just kind of a cogitative, intellectual knowing, right? It's intimate knowing. Adam knew Eve, his wife, and, they, and she bore a son, right? It's intimate knowing, intimate knowledge. And eternal life is this, knowing God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. In Christ, we're drawn up into the most profound knowledge of God that is possible. We're drawn up into God the Trinity, right? The table signifies that we, together, not just we as a bunch of individuals, but together, have fellowship with the Father, in the Son, through the Spirit. Worship isn't uh, just some proclamation that we make to God. It involves that. How many of the calls to worship from the scriptures say, ascribe glory to God, proclaim his wondrous works, right? But worship is more than just a proclamation. It's more than something we do. It's more than something that is just kind of a performance or an activity on our part toward God. Worship is fellowship with God. Worship is participating in God. Peter says it in 2 Peter uh, chapter 1, that we've been made to be partakers of the divine nature. And uh, theologians call this theosis or deification, which sounds like uh, something dangerous, right? That, that men become God, but it's us being drawn up into participation in the divine life. Right? Um, by God's grace, we have fellowship with the Father, not just as Christ's Father, but as our Father. As we enjoy the privilege of the position of the beloved Son to whom we are united by the Holy Spirit of love who lives in us. God is love, and we are brought into him. And we abide in him, and he in us. His home is in us. And so we abide in him in mutual delight, mutual service, even mutual honor. Jesus prayed to his Father that we would share the glory that the Father shared with the Son from all eternity. And there's an Orthodox theologian, I'm not going to know how to pronounce his name really, Paniotes Nellis, who says, Christ accomplishes the salvation of man not only in a negative way, liberating him from the consequences of sin, paying the penalty of our sin, but also in a positive way, as the second Adam who did what the first Adam failed to do, which is unite humanity with God. Christ does this. He does it 
not just for you as an, as an individual, but for all of you corporately as a body of Christ. And this is what humanity was always meant for. And uh, Torrance says, perhaps then we are never more truly human than at the Lord's table when Christ draws us into his life of communion with the Father and into communion with one another. Because God's purpose in Christ is, as Ephesians 2 says, to create in himself a single new humanity to fulfill the purposes of creation and establish his kingdom. So from a Trinitarian standpoint, God is in the business of creating community. Because God is a trinity, because God is love, because he's made us in his image and is restoring us to that image in his son, he is knitting us all together in the divine community. His divine life of love then transforms us as we're in his presence. And it draws us away from sin, which is essentially self-love. It draws us toward holiness, which is essentially love of other. And so we taste and see that the Lord is good. And all other false gods, all idols, they become a bad taste in our mouths. In a way that transforms our community. And this is why Paul, in, uh, in 1 Corinthians 11, when he's talking about the Lord's table, he gets upset at the Christians in Corinth because they were coming to the table selfishly. They were not considering one another in love. They were not showing deference and kindness to one another. He says, but we're all one body. We're all one in Christ, characterized by the divine love. So you can't act that way. That's not the Lord's table that you're taking, he says. So while the, while the table is, in one sense, it's the most exclusive time of our worship, it's the, the only time where we say, if you're not a Christian... You're not invited to this part. It, it's the most exclusive time in our worship. In another sense, the table should be the most inclusive time in our worship where we truly and freely receive one another in love, just as we have been truly and freely received in love by Christ. So as our mutual participation in Christ in a way that breaks the power of sin in our lives and restores us, to the very purpose for which we were created, the sacrament is appropriately called communion. Communion. So, children. There's a sense in which Jesus is not here with us right now. He's up in heaven. Right? And there's a sense in which Jesus is here with us. God is here with us in a special way, in a good way, and he loves you, and he makes you new again to love him and to love each other. So third, final point, the Lord's table is anticipating the future, right? Our eternal destiny is guaranteed to us in Christ, <clears throat> that destiny in which uh, the very presence of sin will be gone forever. Uh, we've seen how this sacrament is a reflection on the past, how it's a present participation, now it's future orientation, and really there's a sense in which when we think of it in the past and we think of it in the future, it still has to do with our present, doesn't it? because we're here right now reflecting on those things and anticipating those things. <clears throat> but uh, it's future orientation. He says, uh, Jesus says in verse 29 of our passage, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And so Jesus is referring here 
to that final day where he returns, judges the world, and, uh, and in, uh, in Revelation 19, this is referred to as the marriage supper of the Lamb. The Lamb is the one who was slain, he has risen, and he's getting married, right? And this is the celebration of it. When he returns, he judges the world, he gathers his people to himself, and he makes all things new forever. And it's called a supper, but the, the tenor of the meal is more like what's descriptive of a feast. There's much rejoicing. And we're given a few glimpses of it in the Bible. Uh, Jesus' first miracle in John's gospel was to make a bunch of really good wine for people to enjoy at a wedding celebration in Cana. We know what the Bible says about wine, right? It makes the heart glad, and that's good. Too much glad is bad, right? Don't be drunk with wine, but God made it good. And it's to be enjoyed uh, with thanksgiving and prayer. Wine makes the heart glad, and Jesus wants us to be glad. He says he wants his joy to be in us so that our joy may be full, so that our joy may be complete. And joy, then, was the first order of business. John points out the fact this was the first miracle he performed at Cana. He made wine, and it was good wine, because that's reflective of the joy that he came to bring. So wine, then, is, um, is an appropriate element for us. And it makes sense that joy was his first order of business in that first miracle, because Jesus came to set things right, and he will complete that work once and for all at his return. He will bring his Father's kingdom to this world forever, and it'll be called the new heavens and the new earth, where everything will be characterized by the divine communion, and great, uh, it, it'll be the great culmination of our salvation and the purpose for which we were created. And Isaiah talks about it in his uh, 25th chapter. <clears throat> says of that day, on this mountain, which is, um, he's talking about Mount Zion, which is where Jerusalem is, the holy city, the city of God's people, which is symbolic of God's people, just the church, right? Um, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. I mean, this is a good meal, right? This is not just your Monday night meal. Um, and he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We've waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in our salvation. So at the final defeat of death, there's going to be a feast. There's going to be a celebration. And the only thing remotely close to that celebration now that we have on earth is a wedding, a joyful celebration of people coming together, a joyful celebration of unity and love and new life. And the sacrament points us forward to that with sure hope. Peter Lightheart says that 
at the center of Christian worship stands a table. That's been true, that's been reflected even in the, the architecture of churches throughout the centuries. Um, the table's in the middle, and it's down on the floor where the people are. At the center of Christian worship stands a table, and the climactic event toward which all liturgical action moves, a meal of bread and wine, a feast on the good things of this earth. The bread and wine of the Eucharist are the this-worldly foretaste of the marriage supper of the Lamb, and thus show the trajectory of the entirety of this world. So it's a foretaste and it's a pledge of the marriage supper of the Lamb. As surely as you can eat this supper, supper, (laughs) you can know that that supper is coming and it is for you because of Jesus. It's the promise that one day God will wipe away every tear. He'll wipe away the very presence of sin and all of its effects. This makes all of our suffering now, this makes all of our persecution in this world, this makes all of our confusion, all of our brokenness, all of our grieving, this makes even our death bearable endurable because it won't be like this forever it is not as everybody says life's short it sucks then you die it is not that the world is not the way that it's supposed to be but God is going to fix it so this meal nourishes our faith against despair Against hopelessness, it renews our hearts for praise, for true worship. As a foretaste of the Lamb's High Feast, it strengthens us in joyful faith, then the sacrament is appropriately called the Lord's Supper. And so, children, Jesus is good for you, and he's good for the whole world. And one day Jesus is going to fix everything that's broken and we're going to dance and sing and play and eat good food with God forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we want the hope of heaven, but our faith is weak. We're quick to think that heaven depends on us in some way. We're quick to forget that the Lord Jesus Christ has secured heaven for us. So we pray now that you would make us quick to remember the gospel, quick to trust Christ, quick to celebrate your love, quick to thank you and praise you, quick to be then the conduits of your love in this world. We pray that you would abide with us and in us, especially as we look forward to this table, this meal together. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.